friends. Here's the uh, moment you've been waiting for, another episode of Swing Thoughts. Oh, yay. <laughs> Every week, I just imagine our, you know, golf uh, geeks that love this show are just like, oh, is it, is it almost Swing Thoughts times yet? Is that time? Is it almost time for the big show? Well, it is. Here it is. I'm uh, Humble Howard from the Humble and Fred Show Golf Spiritual Leader, along with Coach Tim, Tim O'Connor, O'ConnorGolf.ca. Look at you, looking at me, looking at you, dressed in these fineries. Resplendent, I would say. Yes. Visions of sartorial splendor, as my father <laughs> used to say. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, we'll tell you right now, we finally, uh, we've been talking about Jonathan Wong apparel the last couple of weeks, but we're finally wearing some. Uh, let's go to Coach Tim. Tim, what are you uh, uh, featuring uh, on this show? Well, I am modeling the uh, fairway and green vest. Mm. Lots of freedom. Very nice, solid color to go with a fairway and green patterned shirt. Uh, I'm colorblind, so I got the okay for my wife that they go together, so we're fine. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I'm colorblind, too, but my lady friend isn't here yet, so I just went with, well, it seems like it matches. Uh, when she first met me, she said, do you shop at All Things Brown? I went, I guess. I don't know. Um, I'm wearing the, uh, what am I wearing here? This is Zero Restriction. This is a, a really cool shell. Uh, because it's got um, sort of a nylon, this part, whatever the, the main part is, but your arms are not restricted. Um, and of, uh, I just want to mention that Jonathan Wong Apparel, each brand delivers great quality and styling for all weather conditions. They also offer great accessory lines that can be totally customized for your club, uh, one that you would be proud to wear and proud to sell. Uh, Jonathan Wong will be with us in a couple of weeks to get into uh, more about, you know, this amazing... Uh, stuff. Can we call it stuff? <sighs> it's golf. I mean, it's stuff. It's golf stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also want to, of course, mention that our, uh, you know, our friends at uh, TaylorMade Golf, like, it's uh, it's incredible. The, um, the game has changed, but TaylorMade Canada continues to evolve with the Sim 2 driver. You mentioned you've got yours. Mine is sitting over here. Yet to be struck. Where's yours? Is yours in the background there? Right behind me there. Yep. It arrived. <laughs> it arrived the same day that Dictator Ford closed down golf yeah. in Ontario. The only jurisdiction in North America where golf is illegal. The world. The, the only place on world? planet Earth right now where they play golf, wherever they play golf, this is the only place you can't play. I got mine. My Sim True driver came the day before the lockdown. You can experience the drives every golfer wants to hit and no golfer wants to follow with the all-new Sim 2 driver only from TaylorMade. Visit TaylorMadeGolf.ca to learn more. And maybe a little bit later on in the show, we'll tell you more about that. Our, uh, our guest today, look at him. You know, he. Well, I wonder who's. I wonder who sponsors his clothing because he always looks, you know, pretty well put together. Oh yeah. He is uh, a mental performance coach extraordinaire. Has been teaching people all over the world, not only golfers but people who teach golfers. He coaches coaches. He's written several books. Uh, we've had him on to discuss these before. The lost art of putting. The lost. I don't have it in front of me, Carl. The lost art of playing golf. I believe I've I've read it. Okay, so I'm. I have that down. Uh, please welcome back to our program, uh, Carl Morris. Hello, sir. How are you? 
Thanks, Howard. Good to be Tim. Good, good to be back with you. I, I actually feel uh, feel underdressed in the sense that the the, <laughs> the top that I've got, the top that I've got, I actually bought it myself. So I uh, I feel as though I'm, uh, I'm 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 missing out with all this uh, this this uh, sponsored apparel. Worse, oh <laughs> <laughs> that's funny you Carl, say that, Carl. Carl, Carl come on. <clears throat> Golf communications. I mean, it's against the code to go into your own pocket yeah. by yeah. anything. I, I, I was like, wait a second. I thought you taught and worked around golf. Not only are we wearing Jonathan stuff, but I've got a TaylorMade T-shirt. Uh, but listen, you look great. Where do we uh, find you this morning? Give us some context. Tell our audience where uh, where Carl Morris is today. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm at home in the uh, in in the office, the domain that I've uh, spent best part of four months in during the during the lockdown doing various zoom conferences and calls and working with players and things like that and um that's that's in manchester in the, in the sort of mid part of england and up the northwest of england and, I, and at one point we were talking before about the course closures and things like that i had a guy I had a guy from the states asked me how things were in the uk and i said well at the moment if you're in scotland you can play golf on the golf courses but you can't in uh, you can't in Ireland. Uh, you can play golf in Wales, but you can't in England. I said, if you can work any of that out, you're a better man than me. It was a crazy period. And for people who haven't been there, all of those places are fairly close together. So did UK drivers? Well, for for your context, Carl, here in Ontario, the only place you can't play golf in Canada, you if you live in Ottawa, you can drive across the border to Quebec and play golf this weekend. When you were in lockdown in the UK, were people going to those other places to play? There, there, were, there were various English people attempting to cross the border into, uh, in, into Scotland, but uh, the esteemed first leader of the Scottish, uh, Scottish National Party, I think she'd, she'd, she'd rebuilt Hadrian's Wall to, uh, to stop the English <laughs> going back into, into, into Scotland. So it was actually illegal to, to, to go into Scotland. It was illegal to go into Wales. Um, but as we were saying before, um, the crazy thing is, certainly where, where, where I live, that you would, you would you could actually go out for some exercise every day and one of the places that you could go to exercise and walk was the golf course so i used to go and have a walk on my local golf course where my wife plays and i would see hundreds of people walking around the golf course so you could go on the golf course you could go on the golf course but not with any clubs or balls so it was just it was just uh, an amazing thing did people take umbrellas and kind of pretend it as we often do with umbrellas? Yeah, I think there was a few people out there swing, swinging umbrellas, and um, in, in in many ways, it was um, it was probably a good opportunity to uh, to get out there and not hit any bad shots. Yeah, I, uh, I remember I, re- I remember once once hearing a story about a very eccentric gentleman who was up at I think it was it was in the it was in the far north of Scotland it may have been at, it may have been at Dornoch or Nairn or somewhere in the in the sort of wilds of Scotland who, who who went out every single day onto the golf course in a kilt but without any golf clubs he would just actually go and play a round of golf without actually hitting any shots he would just walk around imagining that he was he was hitting shots and 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 play 18 holes every day like that so um, he was probably the happiest golfer. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, I was going to say nothing because you're because you're not over par, you're not under par. You're just walking around in the splendor. I played at a course here in Canada uh, for a long time called the National, and it had a lot of you know 
pretty well-to-do members. And one of the richest members, as he got very, very old, he would go out with his clubs, but within a hole or two, he didn't want to play anymore. He just liked to look for balls. And so, this is true. He, honestly, he could have bought the golf course with the change in his pocket, but he just... So, what they had to... They, they was backing up the golf course because he would stop playing and just look for balls <laughs> on every hole because that's what made him happy. He just enjoyed finding golf balls. And I thought, you well, maybe, I, maybe that in the end is what the game's about. Find, find what, what you enjoy about it. Exactly. I, I actually remember... Um, I was on a golf trip to Ireland and I played uh, the old course at Ballybunion earlier in the week. And then I went back with a photographer, no golf clubs. So we're just walking around the golf course. And I had such a greater appreciation for the course. And I realized it was because I wasn't attached to my game. It was, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't walking down the golf course sulking about, you know, hitting one into the, you know, into the ocean or something. But it's funny that Tim. I, I um, you know, with a lot of lot of players, certainly at the at the you know tour end of things, uh, over the years, I, I, I think it's been very beneficial for a number of players. I mean, a suggestion, you know, I heard that Nicholas Jack Nicholas used to do this when you get to a venue. If you've got the time, is actually walk the golf course first, but actually walk it backwards. Yeah. And you know it's it's for anybody for anybody listening, especially if you're in if you're in um, Ontario and you can't actually play the game. I promise you, if you if you walk the golf course backwards, starting at the 18th, um, and, and literally walk walk the course backwards, you'll actually what I call shatter the illusion, because course designers um, employ a phenomenon. If I call it the railway line effect whereby if you were stood on a, on a, not that you would hopefully not be doing this, but if you were stood on a railway line, if you look down a railway line, the lines appear to meet. Now, obviously, they never do. But there's a foreshortening effect as you look, as you look into, into the distance. And what course designers do, they, they employ that really well. So many holes give the impression of actually being tighter and narrower than they really are. But when you, when you walk the course backwards, when you stand on the green and look out to the fairway, you you shatter that illusion. You'll see the the, the width of a, a mm-hmm. lot of the holes. You'll see the width of a lot of the fairways. You know, I'm not saying there's not difficult holes. There obviously is, but it's a it's a really good good exercise. And I remember, um, you know, Graham McDowell years ago w- working with him, and he, he he was playing at the Dunhill Links Trophy, and he got in late for whatever reason, and he and he could only walk the the old course because he didn't have time. Because it was it was um, the old course Carnoustie and Kingsbarns, and I think it was the first time he'd ever he'd ever walked the old course, and he walked it the, the night before he played, and then went out the next day and shot I think shot sixty three or sixty four something like that, and he and he said it was amazing how many of the shots that he'd actually kind of seen in his mind's eye the night before came 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 to fruition now it obviously it's not as simple as just walking the course and you're going to shoot 63s but it's just interesting it's just interesting how you can you can you know look at different approaches and different ideas just to you know un- unlock some of the mysteries of the game you know carl we've been talking the last couple of weeks on the show i've been i'm uh, I, Tim and I a few years ago went to a seminar with Scott Fawcett from Decade and he's been in the, the news a lot lately because he's working with his kid Will Zalatoris. One of the things he recommends and I've tried it a bit is you go on Google Earth 
and you can go to your golf course on Google Earth, and there's just a drawing tool. And I did this during the lockdown because one of the things we were going to talk to you about is, you know, what you guys did to keep golf ready during those months. And I've been doing this, Tim and Carl, on, on my course, Glen Karen. You know, of course, I've played hundreds of times, but I on Google Earth, I could look at the holes and then map out how many yards there are in the landing areas. Because because what you said, Carl, is so true. Some of the course, especially Glen Karen, which is a link style course, it makes your eye think those bunkers are so narrow. But when you go on Google Earth, you realize there's 70 yards between this hazard and that hazard. And I thought to myself, you know. In a way, it'll help free me up because I know I've got this much room to play with. Your your eye doesn't see it, but mentally, you know that there's a lot of room. And and just Google Earth, especially, and Fawcett recommends it for sure for courses you've never played. So you can go and see what the the track looked like when you're looking down on it, as opposed to standing there on, you know, at, at your at your normal uh, your your normal view. What what else did you recommend to your players that they do during the lockdown? Yeah, it was um, it was an interesting interesting time to say the least. And one of the one of the suggestions I did loads of um, Zoom conferences. Normally, normally in January, February, and March, I travel around the UK and and sometimes, well, generally UK and Europe doing uh, seminars to to a live audience. Um, something that something that seems like it's a lifetime away at the, at the moment. I can't I can't imagine humans being in front of me anymore. Um, but. But what we what we did in those Zoom calls, we did it to, to members of various clubs, and it was a great chance to to connect with the members and, and share a few ideas. But one of the things that I, uh, I explored was the idea of, and it, this is something that Tim will relate to, and I'm sure you Howard that, that Fred talked about, Fred Shoemaker talked a lot about, was what we call the in between of golf. You know, the ninety percent of time on the golf course that you're not actually playing that that huge amount of time that you that you're not swinging a golf club and how how can that 90% not have some impact on the on the 10% and and as a suggestion what I what I did was for uh, the players listening in was the idea that every day when you go out for a walk pick something physical that you can focus on so it it might be your breath or it might be the feeling of your feet on the floor or, or maybe something in terms of your, your awareness of your surroundings. But just pick something. So, for instance, if you pick the feeling of your feet on the floor and just walk and see how long you can keep your attention there. And what sounds unbelievably simple is actually really quite challenging because the mind does what it tends to do, which is wander off into the past and project into the future. But uh, the number of people who said that just doing that exercise, just, just for its own sake, just, just to go for a walk, place your attention on something physical that's going on right here and now was a really, really beneficial thing. It kind of calms the mind down and quiets things down. But, you know, I said, well, it's, it's, you, you could look at your daily walk then as a, as a sacred ritual that potentially when you get back to playing golf can be, can be beneficial. Because I think, you know, once you get back playing again, there'll be those occasions where you've got a few holes to play and you might be in contention to win the monthly medal or get your handicap down or whatever. And then that's when the mind does what it does in between shots and plays all its tricks. So if you've, if you've, if you've worked on some of those things in the lockdown period, it's potentially really, uh, really beneficial. Yeah, that's awesome. But in, in essence, what you're talking about is people integrating elements of mindfulness mm-hmm. into your daily routine or the things you do. And once you get your reps in doing that, you can take it to the golf course. 
I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, a great recommendation. So I do a, a webinar called Lower Your Scores with Obedience Training for Your Brain. And one of the things I get asked all the time, so I'll do this webinar and people say, how do I stop myself from thinking? Well, that's what we've been talking about for the last 30 minutes. But, and I say, well, it's normal to think. People say they, they want, they think that PJ Tour players are Zen masters who somehow bliss out and have no thoughts. No, that doesn't happen. As I remember you telling the story about Grant McDowell leading the Scottish Open or something, worrying about topping the ball, yeah. you know, between holes. They have, but the skill of awareness is, is being able to just kind of, focus on say a body part or the sky or the trees and the and and it doesn't stop the thinking because we always start thinking again but we can come back and i think that's the key thing is that people can learn that they can better manage their thoughts not control but manage i think the idea i mean i i've certainly you know, I suppose evolve my my thinking about this over the years. That you know, in in the early days, I suppose I would have been guilty of, if that's the right word, of giving some prescriptive advice to people to to try and change thoughts or alter thoughts or whatever. And you know, unfortunately, I think what that that kind of approach can can just rev up thinking that you that you end up thinking about your thinking. So, <laughs> you know. I, I'm far more. I'm far more now. There's a, a we we actually ran some mindfulness courses um, with a chap called Vin Harris. We we did a number of courses during the lockdown period. Yeah, we had him on our podcast one time. Mm-hmm. Did you? Okay, right, yeah. great. And um, you know, we we did an online course and things like that. And you know, Vin's line is a great one. And he said, really, it's not it's not about trying to change your thinking. It's more about changing your relationship to your thinking. Right. So that. You know, the the idea that you will have the most random thought popping into your head, like Graham out of topping it off the end of the tee, even though you're playing great golf, or you know what, whatever it may be. But I think I think there's an understanding that you can actually notice these thoughts a little bit more and, and, and allow them to be, and then get back to get back to the task of this shot in this moment, and you know creating what you've got in front of you. You know, from meditation, you know, we've talked about this on the show about, you know, mindfulness in and of itself really is just the idea, I think, that you're mindful of of your thoughts and not being controlled by them. Like, you know, a dog seeing a squirrel, every thought that pops into your head. And, you know, I think Tim and I talked about this on the last podcast. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's come up before, which is the idea that when you're meditating, really what you're learning to do is to notice when your mind wanders and bring yourself back to the present. That's really mindfulness because now you've noticed that you're thinking, I might top this in front of everyone. And that's fine. But I'm here now, and what do I have to do on this in this next moment of my life? Um, Carl, I, I, Tim had mentioned that we might want to talk to you about you know how you came to be and um, the fact that you were an aspiring player yourself. So maybe you could take a couple of minutes because I don't know we've had you on many times, but for people that are just tuning in, we've got new listeners. Where did it be? Just take a couple seconds and tell us where it began for you. You were an aspiring player and how you ended up being Carl Morris, a mindfulness, lost art of putting, lost art of golf, etc. Yeah, definitely. How it is. I think many, many people who teach the game wanted to wanted to play for a living and had great aspirations. And 
I, I, I was I was singularly spectacular on the range, but could never never take it to the to the to the golf course. And I, you know, I spent a long time trying to work on a golf swing, thinking a golf swing could fix all the problems, and somebody would be able to give me a series of moves that could fix the swing. And twenty years or so went by with that kind of approach and not really yielding much. And I, I just became more and more interested in in the combination really of how do we how do we develop better skills. Uh, in combination with understanding a little bit more at the mind, because I think I think we're still at the at the beginning point of even even having any concept of of the mind and how it works and the connection with the brain things like that. So um, so yeah, I mean it's twenty odd years ago now that that journey started, and you know I went I went to see Fred Shoemaker. He was a big influence on me. Read Galway's books, looked at NLP, hypnosis, you 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 name it. You know, it was in it was in the library, and I kind of explored all kinds of different avenues. But I've always been a fairly practical person, and I just kind of threw myself in at w- working with players. And I'd, 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 I'd one or two successes in the early days. You know, one one or two players came to me in a in a state of desperation, and um, which is always always quite responsive when they're in that state. And um, <laughs> isn't know, that and, the truth? <laughs> I'm shaking it. No, Please no. save yeah. me. No, I was just thinking of my yeah. kids. My kids really only listen to me when they need something from me. Like you know, money. No, no, I know they need a favor. They need me to get the truck to move their furniture. Then they're paying attention. Please continue, Carl. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, one of the players, a young player in this area, actually, where I live, Phil Archer, Philip Archer, uh, who'd. who'd consistently struggled to put four round scores together, even though he'd had some amazing scores in pro-ams. He, um, we started to do some work together and he went to the tour school that year and shot 27 under par to, to, to secure his tour card. Uh, and all of a sudden it was, it was kind of up and running really the whole, the whole business, I suppose, as a result of that. Um, one, one of the managers who was, who was at the time, well, he still is around Chubby Chandler, who was looking after Graham McDowell and Darren Clark and Lee Westwood and, um, Louis Eustace and I uh, got, to, got to know him really well and worked, had the chance to work with some of his players, got the chance to work with Darren early on and again got quite lucky with that because we had a, we had a couple of sessions and then he went and won a WGC event you know, heading off Tiger Woods, not the match play event, it was the, it was the second one he won, it was the stroke play at, at uh, Akron uh, and he holds a bunch of putts on the on the back nine to hold Tiger off when he was really in his pomp, um, and so it kind of it kind of exploded not not exploded but it it, it it gradually developed from there and you know here we are twenty twenty odd years later still uh, still battling away. Well, as you said, you've put, you've worked with some amazing players, major champions, Darren Clark, um, Louis Oosthuizen. Could you tell us that story? about the dot on the glove with Louis. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Louis, uh, he, he came to see me as a result, again, a result of, of uh, Andrew Chandler, Chubby Chandler. Um, and we sat down in, in, in the office in Manchester and Louis had just played in the US Open. And um, I asked him what was going on and started chatting away. And he, and he said, I'm really struggling with being... Uh, in the shot, he said, I'm playing loads of shots out on the golf course where um, I, I kind of hit the ball. And afterwards, I think I just wasn't there with that shot at all. I was just somewhere else. And I said, well, what are you, what are you doing in between shots? He said, oh, I'm concentrating in between shots. <laughs> wow. It was kind of like one of those 
classic classic moments. And I said, um, I said, well, what would what would you want to be uh, over the ball? What what kind of what kind of state of mind would would you like to? And I think he said focused or absorbed or something like that. And I, and, and I said to him, if the, if that state of mind had a colour, what would it be? And he looked at me as though it was the most ridiculous question that anybody, anybody's ever asked ever, as it probably seemed at the time. And I pushed him on it, and he said, "He said red, I guess." And I never forget; it was one of those serendipitous moments. So we were on, we were at a desk, and there was a red marker pen on the desk. And whether that had triggered him to say red or not, I don't know. But he picked up the marker pen. So he said, "What well, if I if I put a red dot on on the glove?" Could I look at that dot before every shot as a as a kind of signal to get into the this particular shot in this particular moment? And I said, "Yeah, absolutely." And uh, he, he, we went away from that session. He played in the Scottish Open. I think he missed the cut in the Scottish Open, but played pretty well. Um, or, he, or he said he felt better. And then he went to St Andrews. This was two thousand and ten, and he'd never made a cut in a major. And he played the first round, and the whole deal for the whole week was just do one thing was just look at that dot on your glove and that's a trigger to just ask a couple of questions to get into the shot, create the shot. And, and that was that was the goal for the week. And then in between shots, and his caddy was brilliant at this, it was a, a lad called Zach, the, the, the deal in between shots was just to chat away, look at your surroundings, be social, be light, be, be energetic. Um, so dot you're in for the shot come out again in and out for, for, for the for the whole of the round and that was the deal every day and he, he shot, I think he shot 65 or 64 the first round was, was leading many of the pundits said there's no way he can hang on for four rounds and then four rounds later he's um, he's walking up the 18th hole at, 18th hole at St Andrews with a seven shot lead Wow! Um, can you imagine? Can you imagine anything better than that? No. <laughs> on the eighteenth at St Andrews, and you've got a seven-shot lead in the British Open, so you can just um, take advantage of that wide-open fairway. No, I was going to say you could you could just you could just kick it to the left if you wanted to. <laughs> just could have could have could have hit the putter off the tee. Absolutely, you could hit seven putts yeah. easily. Um, yeah. So, it, but it was interesting. It was interesting actually that. Uh, you know, it did the, the dot did did get a little bit of press at the time, maybe maybe a little bit too much because he was already a good player. He'd already oh many gosh. ingredients. Yeah, he, he'd already many ingredients in place. So it was just it was just, I suppose, a trick really in in in, in some respects, a, a focus point, a mantra, if you like. Well, what's interesting though about what you say is a lot of amateurs do the opposite. You know, they're grinding away in their heads all the way to in between shots, and then they get over the ball, and they've got so many things going that. That they're the opposite. It's the it's the upside down of golf that we, you know, Tim's talked about this with his clients. We've talked about it as tournament players. Like in between, you're trying to be as light and social and out of your own stupid head as possible. And yet most people, uh, the ha- higher handicap level, not only is it bad for their golf, but it's not much fun to be around. And it, in the end, you don't you don't leave the golf course feeling lighter. Where I wanted to go with that, though, is as a guy that's worked with European tour players and some high level players over your career. Do you have a thought, opinion, or a, a comment about the state of Rory McIlroy these days? I'm sure that's a hot topic in the UK. What's going on with him? Most one of the most talented players of any generation, and he just seems to be out of sorts when it comes to the more important tournaments. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm always I'm always a bit reluctant to give too much of an opinion, Howard, on somebody that I know. I mean, I, I, we used to uh, when Graham Graham McDowell uh, played practice rounds very often. You're safe here, Carl. Time. You know, you're safe. <laughs> to give you know, your yeah. opinion. Yeah, honestly, like like my other radio show, I call this the witness protection program of podcasts. No, very few people are going <laughs> to don't even worry about changing your name. You're just fine yeah. here. Say what you want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, as I say, I, I, I know him, and he, he, he would kind of like know to say hello to me, kind of thing. But um, um, I, I look at Rory and think there's an immensely gifted, one of the most gifted players in the world. When Rory's game is firing full cylinders, he's he's very hard to beat. Um, but I, I think we don't we don't often or we don't enough look at the whole picture with a with a player. That you know, in a, in a career that he's he's already been around for a number of years, mm-hmm. you know, and he's 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 married now. He's got he's got kids. You know, life off the golf course is probably very different than it's than it's ever been before. You know, he may be, you know, immensely content doing that. I'm I'm, I'm not saying this is the reason, but I just look at it that there's you know many facets to sure. to, to make up a go- make up a golfer, and we you know I think we we want to jump straight in at oh he's doing this with his hips or he's doing that with his elbow or or whatever it may be. You know, when if you if you if you look at a career. Over over twenty years or so, or twenty five years, there's 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 natural peaks and troughs sure. with, with with every play, and, and maybe not fair to look at one slice of a giant you know golf pie. Timmy, what were you going to ask? Well, I was wondering as soon as I heard that Roy was starting to work with Pete Cowan, and my understanding that Pete Cowan is very technical coach, and I went, oh my gosh, really a player like Rory immersing himself in technique this sounds like when Seve started to work with david ledbetter no uh, mac thought, o'grady remember that weird moment oh gosh Do you remember yeah. before he went to ledbetter Seve went to mac o'grady i thought great Seve's gonna start swinging left-handed uh, anyway <laughs> well, exactly. the, 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 best, the best the best story about that is um and, and I, I don't know whether it's true or not but it needs to be because it's such a great story <laughs> it doesn't matter if, if, if you can picture this Apparently, what 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 happened was that Mac, uh, in his own inimitable way, said to Seve that if he was if he was going to work with him, it had to be exclusively him, nobody else, and whatever had happened in the past needed to be buried because he was going to he was going to coach him how to swing the golf club properly. And apparently, what they had to do, Seve had to get some pictures and some videos of his golf swing. And they went, they, they went and did this ceremonial burying. <laughs> yes, in the, I in the get desert, it completely. Where, where, where they went out, and 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 you can just imagine Seve with that sort of look that he used to have of what you know what what's going on here, and, he, and he's you know Seve with some pictures, some videos, and a spade. <laughs> in, right. in, the, in the desert, burying <laughs> his golf course, burying bury his, his golf, golf game. Swings, yeah. so so it could well, be resurrected. Yeah, you know it's 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 funny, but golf is Tragic. littered with stories like that. Yeah. Players who players who win a major and think, well, I got to take my game to another level. So they start working on the game a bit more. I don't know. Uh, Ian Baker Finch, I think, was a good example of that. You had players like, uh, you know, what happened to David Duval? I, I think that part of his thing was I won the Open and it was kind of like Peggy Lee. Is that all there is to a fire? Yeah. Duval is a complicated dude, but there's lots of players where they win 
And so they don't want to become known as the, the one hit wonder. So they go to change the game because I think there's still part of what we're operating within is this golf culture, this paradigm of it always comes down to mechanics. Players, they have a bad round. What do they do? They run to the range afterwards to work on what's my elbow doing and am I supinating, et cetera, et cetera. So, Carl, what I want to – and a thing that I've followed on your podcast, The Brain Booster, is you've had a number of guests recently who have really talked about – it's really about hitting golf shots. It's about adapting. It's not about the swing and the technique. But I still feel like kind of – that is still kind of out in the wilderness a little bit in comparison to this massive golf culture of Instagram and YouTube and all that. But I don't know. That was a lot there. I'll let you go. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, it, it, it is. And I, the minute I don't necessarily see things getting better. I see things getting, getting worse with this that, you know, we kind of we know instinctively that when, as a golfer, you become absorbed in telling your body how to move, by self-instructing, you know, positions within the swing. For the vast majority of people, that's an absolute recipe for disaster. Not everybody, but for the vast majority of people. But there's, a, there's, there's, there's many le- levers, layers and levels to this. You know, it's, it's very intellectually appealing for a coach to believe that they've got the secret, that they've got the secret sauce that they can bequeath to somebody. I think that's a powerful, powerful driver. But I think, you know, when you go down that route, when you go down that rabbit hole, it can be a dangerous place. And you've named a couple of players. I could I could probably reel off thirty players that went down that that rabbit hole and and, and disappeared and, mm-hmm. and and lost their careers. And unfortunately, I think what happens is the the thirty that disappear, we don't hear too much about. But the one or two that you know maybe make that work, we, we hear it. You know he's been transformed by doing this, that, or, or, or another in, in, in his in his golf swing. But fundamentally, you know, in, in the in the lost art books, we said you need. We, I think we need to change the, the fundamental question. Now the fundamental question is either you ask yourself what's wrong with my swing, or you ask yourself what's wrong with my shots. Now, if you ask yourself what's wrong with my swing, you will get a whole bunch of opinions based on the visual aspect of your golf swing, how your golf swing looks from an outside perspective. Mm-hmm. If you ask the question, if you if you ask the question, what's wrong with my shots, then there's a far I think there's a far more objective way of going about dealing with that because you know, it's got too much shape from right to left, too high, too low, whatever it may be. And I think that's where there can be a great synergy then between a coach and a player in working on in working on shots you know there's a book written years ago um stephen covey wrote the the book seven habits of highly effective people and one of the seven habits um was begin with the end in mind it's my favorite of the seven yeah begin with the end in mind now if you think about it begin with the end in mind if you if you're going down the swing route when do you get done when do you get finished with it when when, when is it when yep. is it? When is it? When is it ready? It's never ready. But if if you begin with the end of I want to hit a draw, or a fade, or high, or low punch shots, whatever it may be, you can you can really tune in and develop those skills. So I think you know, is it because technology is so readily available? Is it because many people make their living from coaching the game with the very best of intentions? Because I'm not questioning anybody's intention here. Everybody's got good intentions, but you know. The science would tell us, Gabrielle Wolf's work would tell us that, 
you know, an internal focus of attention directing your body to move in certain ways is just not how we learn things efficiently. Um, but it's, uh, it, I don't see the walls coming down quite yet. We're, we're, we're battling away with podcasts like this, but it's, well, not, it's not changing rapidly. I mean, there's so much there, as the kids say, to unpack. I mean, there's two, the two most famous players that ever sort of rebuilt their swing and went on to greatness. It's hard to argue with Nick Faldo and Tiger Woods. But as you say, the golf world is littered with, you know, people that were on the edge of greatness or even achieve greatness. And then I'll tell you a quick thing that I thought of while you were talking about those players, Tim and and Carl. I was watching a little bit of uh, the PGA tournament this week. I think it's the Valspar. And uh, and I I can't remember the tour player, but he sank a putt like a seven or eight foot putt. And it went in for birdie, but he still made a face. (laughs) And the announcers go, that's the PGA tour player in a nutshell. He made the putt, but he didn't like the part of the hole that the ball went in. (laughs) I thought, thought, you know, that's the the difference between us and them is we would just be happy it went in. But he made a face like he'd missed it because it just wiggled in on the right hand side. The other thing about. You know, swing technique versus golf, you know, in the kingdom is that it's intoxicating. You know, this morning getting ready for the show, I'm looking at my phone and I go onto the Instagram and then in, in there's I got four golf tips in 30 seconds. You know, golfers are in this weird space where there's so much information. When we were all kids, you know, the three of us, you know, I, know, I didn't see my golf swing on video until I was in my 30s. But imagine a, a 16 or a 15, 14-year-old kid now. You know, they can not only can they watch all the videos in the world, but they can watch their own video. They can put their video up on a technology and see the lines. And so it's intoxicating. But as you say, it, it's not out there. It's all internal. Let's uh, be, we're going to have to wrap you up here in a second, Carl, because we've got uh, the rest of the program. We've got a couple things to discuss. I have a couple quick questions. Because I mentioned Scott Fawcett in Decade. And one of the things in The Lost Art of Putting, which I've read and enjoyed, uh, the great question, ask yourself, what does the ball have to do to go in the hole? What do I need to do to get this ball to go in? One of the things Fawcett said, and I wanted to get your reaction was, he said, stop trying to make birdies. Stop trying to make putts. And his point is, statistically, even on the PGA Tour, their eight-foot putt make ratio is 50%. So the rest of us trying to make 10 and 12 and 15-footers are trying to ram them in, and we're leaving ourselves putts coming back that are tougher to make, etc., etc. What do you think about that as a, as a philosophy, as opposed to stop trying to make the putt and, trop, and maybe make a good putting motion or whatever it is I think it's a a, a great philosophy it sounds kind of music to my ears that really I I remember Paul Drake Harrington saying years ago he he always said that you can't you can't go out to make birdies you've just got to create the conditions to allow them to happen and uh, you know that's a perfect example the more you're trying to make the port the more you're trying to make the birdie you know even even on the European tour and PGA tour you can always see it certainly comes Saturday and Sunday when these players are playing par fives where they're supposed to make make birdies how many of them don't because the, you know they're just so absorbed in the the outcome of the hole rather than the creation of the of the individual shots and then creating the conditions to allow that so yeah it's it's a tough skill it's a tough skill to master but 
I think Scott Force is absolutely right there. The more that you, the more that you can create the mindset that allows birdies and allows puts to fall in as opposed to trying to make them. Well, you know, his point, Carl, and, and I really believe this because I've seen it in my own game the last couple of years is a lot of amateurs think we got to make a lot of birdies to lower your scores. Mm-hmm. And he shows you statistically, you know, the difference between a 95 shooter and a 79 shooter is one more birdie. But the biggest difference is less three putts, less two chips, less penalty shots. But in the three putt category, that an 85 shooter, I just read this the other day, has something like three and a half, almost four three putts around because of the idea they expect that they're supposed to be making 12 and 15 and 20 footers. And one of the great things about his statistics is he shows you at 30 feet on the PGA Tour, at just past 30 feet, they start to be more likely to three-putt it than to make it. So if you know those things and you go out and play your regular golf game, his idea, and it kind of goes a little bit with the lost art of putting, is you know, you, your intention is you'd like to sink it, but really you're just trying to get it around the hole. As he says, you might make, you might leave a few putts short, but that one incher is a lot easier to make than the five footer coming back because you rammed it in thinking, I got to make this birdie. And I, and I just wonder what, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. I mean, what we, what we do major on in the, in the book, in the lost start of putting is the idea that, you know, you only need two things to hold a putt. One of them is pace. One of them is line. Um, we ask in seminars, which is the most important and virtually everybody will say pace. But then you say, well, what are you working on? And pretty much everything <laughs> yeah. that we do in putting, That's pretty right. much everything that we do in putting is about line. You know, yeah. all the gadgets are about line. All the all the swing gate, all the putting aids are about line. Very few things are about pace. But but actually, if you just if you just went out with the intention of getting better at pace, yes, it's amazing. You you would three put a whole bunch less. And actually, you know, most golfers three put not because they're bad at line. They, they three put because they're bad at pace. Absolutely, at pace. Most, most are better at pace. Most are better at line than they think, and worse at pace. So, um, just know, before Tim be steps in, I got to tell you the truth. This happened a couple of weeks ago. I, I thought of you. I'm, I'm not just saying this because you're here. I thought of you because during the broadcast, some one of the players who had a line on his ball, he had about a thirty footer and didn't use the line. And I thought, oh. That's Carl Morris right there. Because at 30 feet, the line, even this guy is a tour player. He knew the line was immaterial. It didn't matter where the line was going because he was just trying to make sure the pace was right. Well, that's I my mean, sense line, of it. Go ahead. Go ahead, Carl. No, I was going to say, if the, you know, if the line works for you and you're a good putter using the line, I would be the last person to say. But for, for a lot of players, taking the line away is very liberating. Mm-hmm. You get far less involved in perfection and much more ab- ab- absorbed in feel and pace and more, more sort of artistic notions rather than scientific perfection. Well, there you one go. of the things that I um, picked up from your Lost Art of Putting book was uh, that reading the putt on the low side about halfway down, because a lot of people are really flummoxed on how to read a green. And I think that that was one of the most best parts of that book I got from that was yeah. low side about halfway down. Well, if you haven't figured out, Tim and I are uh, we uh, we admire this man, Carl Morris. He's right there. He's about to leave. Lost art of putting. Uh, if you're looking for a really good, uh, if you're in the lockdown, you want to improve your putting at home. Read this now. Uh, Lost art of golf, mind power, brain booster. The uh, podcast. Uh, Carl's a solid single-digit podcaster now. You know, he's getting there. (laughs) He's on his way to scratch. 
Uh, thank you so much, Carl. We really appreciate you popping in, uh, helping us uh, get this season underway. My, my my pleasure. I guess I guess when I started to hear the music, I knew it was my time. Was yeah, for this that was time, kind of a so subtle I'm nod to we're wrapping you up. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. no, it's been a lot of fun. I always enjoyed speaking to both of you. Thank you, sir. Thanks, well, Carl. We, we, we feel privileged being able to call on you. There you go. Carl Morris, everybody. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, fine people here, Timothy. At uh, where? Uh, here we go. I got so many... Um, there we go. You mentioned the SIM 2 driver. You know what? The SIM 2 irons are perfect for our uh, swing thought, you know, golf geeks because their unique cap back design will give you more forgiveness. We're all looking for that. More distance, more often. Experience the all new SIM 2 irons from TaylorMade. Uh, visit TaylorMadeGolf.ca to learn more. I've seen them. They're pretty. Uh, they're pretty. Uh, they're pretty good looking. You know, they they're the oh, kind of they they look like you can just hit them far, and I think that's what we're all <laughs> that's what we're all looking for. Well, the thing is, is that there's there when you put them down, they're just they're really sweet looking. It used to yes. be that the so-called game improvement clubs looked a bit clunky. These yes. look so sweet. That's a great point. The old game improvement irons were like. Almost like you didn't want to be seen using them because people were like ooh, like, it's like it's like training wheels on your bike as a kid, or having or having a ball retriever. Yes, <laughs> no, I remember that. I had that conversation with my ex-wife years ago. She wanted to buy me some golf stuff. You know what she bought me? She bought me the toilet, the potty putter for Christmas oh, one no, year. Yes, oh, I know that that. Oh God, yeah. was that cheesy my my dad actually had a great line and my dad my dad said he said you know i've been playing so bad i had to get my ball retriever regripped <laughs> that's correct but i remember she gave me that and i looked at it and you're basically for you people who don't know it it's a it's like a putting green you use while you're on the toilet and i was like i said to her you know that's not, i can't really and and then when I met this this lovely woman I'm with now, Rachel, the first present she bought me was a uh, a head cover. Uh, I think I don't even remember. It's a squirrel or a chipmunk or it's like a cartoon character, giant animal head cover. And I just said, well, I really appreciate you doing that, but I can't show up to my golf course with that. <laughs> I just I can't. I and I said, you'll be. It, yeah. I said, we'll oh. just be better if you don't try and buy me any golf stuff. That would be fine. I know, I know. The best. Oh, the, the whatever people trying to buy. What did we get, Dad, for his birthday or for Father's Day? Well, he likes golf. Yeah. Said, no, don't. Just you could buy a book, buy a golf book. Well, okay? I'll tell you what. If you're looking for a Father's Day or Mother's Day gift coming up, we recommend JWApparelInc.com. Jonathan Wong. Uh, we mentioned some of these brands, Fairway and Green. You know, Tim and I got our shipment of clothes to this week, and I don't know what you did. I was like Christmas. I put all my big exactly. shirts out. I put them all on the table. I took a picture. Uh, the the brand names are Fairway and Green, Zero Restriction, which is what I'm wearing, B Dratty, EPNY, Garb, Royal Albatross, and PRG Golf. These aren't, you know, I, I tried on a couple of the shirts, man. These are not your normal, I've never had golf apparel like this. Like, it's almost, it's a bit intimidating. Were you a bit nervous for the first five minutes you had it on? Yeah, because I'm legendarily spill shit all every time I have food near me. Apparently, I just spill it on myself. So I know it's like me and ice cream cones and golf shirts. It just like doesn't yeah. work. 
Well, you know, I told you. No, this stuff, it, 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 it just feels different. Yeah. But you just know that it's quality and that this is stuff that's going to last more than one golf season. I For sure. With other stuff, after about a year, ugh. Yeah. Well, well, this stuff, I can't see this stuff doing it at all. Especially after bad rounds. Like, I've got a couple of old golf shirts that just have this kind of death stink on them. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I was... Shot 82 that day. Oh, yeah, that smells like an 82. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, when I was first starting out, this is a true story. When I first started out and doing stand-up, because, you know, they talk about, they, I don't know if you ever heard this phrase, flop sweat. Yes. Um, it, that was uh, Al, uh, Foster, no, Albert Brooks. Yeah, Albert Brooks in Broadcast News. Yeah. That's him ha- having an attack of flop sweat. But when you, the reason they call not doing well bombing or dying is because what happens to your body it exudes uh sweat but in a different kind of i don't know from a different pituitary gland but i can tell you i had a sports jacket you know that's what we used to wear back in the 80s and i couldn't i bombed so hard one night i couldn't wear it again because the stink that came off me was so foul (laughs) what is the biology what what role does that play in our evolution as a species, you know, this guy, like, as a caveman, this guy tried to get up in front of the cave and say a few funny lines, but he yeah. bombed. So is that a way that they kind of get, you know, put out into isolation or something? <laughs> I think more it's like, it's like the kind of fear sweat. I guess maybe it's to throw the tiger off your tail. You know, it's, the tiger's about to eat you. It's like, I can't eat that. It's foul. It's, something's wrong with it. Exactly. Uh, anyway. It's sick. But you're right about those golf shirts. Like, I, they definitely, after a, a season or so, if you, you know, when we've been lucky, we've been, we've been given some nice golf stuff. But uh, as you're, this stuff has a different feel to it. Uh, yes, it's a bit more expensive. But as you say, it's going to last you more than one season. In a couple of weeks, we're going to get Jonathan on and he can explain. Jonathan's a good player, by the way. Did you know that? Jonathan Wong. He was avid. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that qualitative good player. Yeah, very well. Yeah, decent, like low, single digit. Cool. Um, so that was great. Carl Morris, that, that idea of putting. By the way, that's one of my favorite books of his is The Lost Art of Putting. And uh, when I was having some trouble with my putting a couple of years ago, I, I engaged Carl's services for a couple of sessions. I know you work with him for different aspects of your coaching business. Um, the more I get into this decade thing, and now I've tried to book, not Scott Fawcett, but he has a partner, a guy named Lou Stagner. And I've tried to confirm him for a week from today to talk about statistics and how the average amateur can benefit. But man, I'll tell you, the more I've gotten back into decade, the more I think it's valuable for everybody, only from the standpoint of when I watch golf now and when, if you get into it a little bit, you'll see, I'm just noticing how many bad shots these guys hit. It's given me such a, a renewed um, sense of you know how crappy we all are. One twenty-two last night. Dustin Johnson. Uh, he was playing with that uh, uh, Newman ki- Newman Newman uh, Neumann, the twenty-two-year-old, yeah. unbelievable golf. Got the super. They was playing with him and Justin Thomas. All three golfers from the fairway. Hundred and twenty-ish shot. One of them hit the green because it was a little bit of a doesn't matter, but that's the three best one of the two of the one and two in the world. And those guys missed the green from 125 yards. So it kind of reminds us that there's a dispersion to everyone's shots and that if you can be 
If you understand your dispersion, then your expectations can be a little bit more tempered. Like, I honestly can't wait to get back and play again. Number one, for strategic reasons, and also, two to realize... Wow, I hit a lot of shots in a round that are pretty good that I think suck, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. Like, and I think that's the biggest thing about knowing statistics is that you get to realize, like, some of your shots that you might think aren't any good aren't bad. No, know? exactly. What I what I like about Decade, and it connects to what Carl was talking about, is it connects you with what's real yes like walking the golf course backwards connects you with what's real so i'm sure a lot of our listeners are thinking you know what i don't want to get lost in statistics a lot of people go like they still don't understand strokes gained that took me about three years to get but what i mean by connect to what's real is so if you walk the golf course backwards you actually see what the golf course actually is and using technology like the google maps thing you see exactly what's there as opposed to what you perceive to be. Yes. And not only with your eyes, but just, you know, things that you tend to do. So if you have some stats, you have some data that's real. If you use technology, you know it's real. And just one thing, I'll just finish off here. What golf course designers do, uh, Carl talked about that railway effect. Yes. They also place hazards, uh, trees, things in a way to create illusions so that a bunker looks like it's right in front of a green when, in fact, it is not. Yes, and exactly. Even if, you're, even if you, you've played your home course for years, you still get sometimes sucked in. A hundred percent. You know, and this, by the way, decade isn't all about these numbers. There's only a part of it. What, what the numbers do and what it's done for me as a reminder is just to realize if you're 178, you know, even at the professional level, from 180 yards on any golf course that the PGA Tour plays, there there is a stroke, a number that they make from that point to the hole. So if you're in the middle, if you're 180 yards from the green and you're on the PGA Tour, depending on uh, the severity of the greens, you're basically, their stroke average is three point something. Like they, they don't, they're not, not that they're not as good as we think they are. We're not as bad as we think we are. That's awesome point. Awesome point. You know, there's this Golf Galaxy commercial I keep referencing. And I told you the other day when we were talking about it, I love their their tagline. It's something like, for, for all of us who believe there's a better golfer inside. And I think that we all, that's why we're here. We all kind of believe that that there's a better player inside. And, and most of us have gone down the, if I could just make my swing bulletproof. When as Carl says, reality is, it, it's not about, a better swing for anti-fragility. It's about a better game, a better idea, a better shot. And the thing that decade, I, I just did this on Glen Karen. I'll give you an example. The first hole at Glen Karen has three bunkers. Now I've lasered them depending on what tees I'm playing. I'll say, okay, that one bunker there is like two ten. One's two twenty. One's two forty five. The two forty five one, I can't. Um, I don't often try and go over unless it's downwind. But then I looked on Google Maps and there's so much room to the right of that first bunker. And what I did is I, I just drew a line in the middle of this. I, 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 there's 65 yards between the one part and the other part. And then I just drew a line in the middle. I said, okay, where does that aim me off the tee? And it aims me so much further right than I normally aim. And, it, and I, what it's going to do is it will, I'll never try and go over those bunkers again. There's no point yeah. because my shot pattern 
you know, further to the right, the odd one that I, you know, pull, I'll, I'll fly the bunker. But the other ones will be safe. And especially if you're starting your round on that hole, you just don't want to be in the bunker. You know, plain and simple. Exactly. Again, it's connecting to what's real. And so, boy, if there's something that, you know, golfers in Ontario, <laughs> if you're looking to do, yeah. <laughs> go on Google Maps and your golf course and you'll just learn a ton. Yeah, absolutely. From that. And, and what you said there, I think, is brilliant. It's it's connecting to what is real as opposed to what the or- architect or what you, especially after you've played like our courses, we played them so many times. You sort of just take for granted that you know where everything is. And I looked around all 27 holes. And I was like, wow, man, I had no idea. There's so much room over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, this came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there was a story. Most people are familiar with it by now. About the PGA Tour announced this scheme to award mm-hmm. $40 million as an incentive for uh, their stars and I don't have it in front of me, uh, but there was six criterium uh, that would um, be taken into consideration, social media, impact, ratings, etc. And there was a pool of $40 million that we're going to give to... Oh, there we go. Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm fixing this sign today, just so you know. <laughs> Every every show, yeah. uh, I think it's every show at about the uh, forty minute mark, one hour twenty five mark. It falls down. That's I love it because Fred's coming over here today with our new signs. That's why I didn't put this up permanently. Anyway, what do you think? What What are your thoughts when you heard? And again, I'm sort of half explaining this, but I think most people listening to us have heard the story that the PGA Tour made this announcement. There was quite a bit of a stink about it, but what are your thoughts? I don't like it at all. To me, it just sounds like a popularity contest. Um, It's I I just don't I don't like it at all. I just think that there's enough there's enough to reward people out there. But it's kind of like if someone's having a tough year, well, let's throw something Ricky Fowler's way because let's make Ricky feel a little bit better. And and he's doing so much for golf uh, in terms of visibility and things like that. So I'm not a big fan of it. Mm. I remember sending you a – I'm actually trying to find the email that I sent to you about why I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the four, it's called the uh, the PGA Tour's new new bonus program. It's the Player Impact Program. Or yeah, the it. PIP. The tour will pay out $40 million to 10 players deemed to do the most to boost publicity and engagement for the tour and uh, so on. Uh, I, I have a different opinion, but I can. But, but no, I was going to say, you say you don't like it. Um, it's a popularity contest, etc. Uh, but is that the reason just because... I'm trying to find the criteria here. These players will be chosen through an impact score, a number fueled by several factors, including popularity and Google search. Q rating. Do most people know what a Q rating is? No, I don't. Um, a Q rating is a rating given to celebrities, TV stars. You know, I first heard about it back in the early 90s when, you know, you, you would say a Jerry Seinfeld has a Q rating of, meaning his impact uh, on commercial, popularity, etc. So now... Sounds like a Black Mirror episode. Yeah. Uh, Nielsen brand rating, a metric that judges how a player, player delivers to sponsors based on their exposure, etc., etc. I will tell you why I think they did it, and I'll tell you why I like it. 
I think they did it because the era of Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson are sadly, you know, we're in the sunset of that that era. As much as we we, it's hard for guys our age because we've also lived through the a bit of the Nicholas Trevino, then into the Faldo and Norman couples, and now we're into the then the Tiger era and Phil. And oftentimes in sports, you know, we're, we're loath to let that go because to us, that was, you know, those are great times. The problem with the PGA Tour is it's so tied to Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson that they need to get their, they need to create other stars. So this impact score, you know, it is going to help fuel people like Dustin Johnson and, um, Bryson DeChambeau, etc., to make sure that they're thinking, you know, it's not just about their golf. They've got to be ambassadors for the game. The thing is, yeah, it's a lot of money, but if those guys do well, what it does, it brings more attention to the tour. This is the second part, why I like it. So Tiger and Phil are leaving, so now you've got this hole to fill. And um, I think the players that make an impact in this program will make an impact for the whole sport not just themselves no i still don't like it and i was never a phil fan anyways no neither um, was I. not neither was i but that's not part of this no right so to me this is not dissimilar to what we just saw happen with soccer with that whole super league thing and the reaction against it um this to me is somewhat a reaction to this thing was called the PGL League. Yeah, it was, uh, they were going to break away from the tour. To yeah, it was like a, it was, it's like this super league level for golf, right? And my sense of this is kind of a knee jerk thing by the tour, but the criteria just seems so nebulous to me. Uh, it's like a bunch of different factors, and you weigh them up, and and you know if if someone waves to the crowd more nicely, I I just don't. Nah, I think you're. You know what? I, I just. Uh, which is not like you. I think you're being very narrow in your uh, assessment. I don't, I don't think know. you're expansive. I just this instinctual reaction to it. I don't know. Um, is this like the Lady Bang in the NHL? I don't know. No. Um, um, by the way, I'm getting a little bit of. Is your one of your speakers on? Because I'm getting a little bit of you and I coming through from something there. It, you might. It uh, might just be a, a little bit of audio coming through. I'll turn my. Um, I just turn my speaker down a bit. That's okay. I, hey, listen. I, you know, you. It is. I, I think it's more than just about waving to the crowd. I mean, again, it, it, you think it's nebulous. I'm looking at their criteria. I, I just think, in general, you know, the PGA Tour is at a crossroads as Tiger is fading into the day, and, and Phil. You know, I, I've hated him as long as I've known him, except now I like him a little better than I think I hate him a little less now because he's, he's moving on. But they're in a bit of a, a pickle, if I might say that. They're in a bit of a spot because, you know, their superstar of all superstars is going into the sunset. And I think these kind of things are meant to make sure that their current crop of superstars get that it's not just about how they they're going to have to caretake the game a little bit and maybe this is and you're right maybe this is a reaction to that super league of golf but uh i i think it's i'm not as offended by it you know no i i I just think okay um not offended oh i think you are you're deeply (laughs) you're deeply (laughs) deeply offended I'm scowling. You are. Oh, you're rich people. Ah, rich people. No, no, look. That's you. I don't understand well, look, the rich. Okay. 
Well, look at look at Arnold Palmer. Yes. Well, what, the look at his impact. Look at his impact on the game. Yeah, I know. He wasn't incentivized yes, by he was. being Arnie. No, he was incentivized by sponsors and the responsibility. He did all these things. Who came on board once they kind of understood what was at work. Yeah. I don't think that that changed Arnie and Iota. Maybe. He was still just Arnie. Okay. And I think that's the same way that Lee Trevino was just just Lee. I mean, super entertaining. Um, gosh, Tiger... Um, Tiger was super popular, but he he wasn't trying to be popular. In fact, I thought most of the time when Tiger's prime, he was trying to be less popular. Yeah, again, I, I don't want to I don't I don't want to make this a, a debate. Except Tiger Woods was on every cover of uh, uh, that the video game. Believe me, Tiger Woods was in the business of promoting Tiger Woods. But anyhow, um, let's agree uh, to disagree. One one last thing. There's a. Uh, there was a guy that I watched on television just briefly last night, and I thought, this is an interesting evolution of the game. And he is a, a, a name, uh, no, one, no one has heard of him. His name is Jordan Hahn, and he, is, uh, he has the, the new record of being the tallest PGA Tour player to ever tee it up in a professional event. And he is six taller foot. He's six. He's an inch taller than Phil Blackmar. He's six wow. foot eight. Whoa. And I don't know what kind of career he's going to have, but I just saw it as. Uh, isn't it interesting that these guys have gotten taller, stronger, bigger? You know, you talk about Arnie and Jack. Jack's five eleven. Couples five eleven. Arnie five eleven. Uh, now Dustin. Um, the Tigers six two. Dustin six three. This guy six eight. And and watching him on TV, I'm like, this is a guy who 20 years ago would never have even picked up a golf club. You know, 30 years ago, golf wouldn't have even been a thing for him. Well, that was interesting to see that. We're going to see these human beings evolve to be you know six four six five standard you know well great i'm five seven and a half (laughs) you are you and i are so past it man yeah i know so past um, it well i mean it's the it's an evolution well look at the size of goaltenders now in the nhl they will look at you if you're any less than six foot four yeah because when you're on your knees your shoulders are still at the crossbar yeah but um yeah it's it's an evolution you see i mean you see guys like you didn't used to see guys like Brooks Kepka on the no. tour or I mean, Dustin like Johnson. Chiseled. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean it's more uh, it's embracing more of the athletes and you're seeing it now that there used to be this huge gulf between long driving yes. and actual PGA Tour that that's coming narrower and narrower what we see with Bryson and these guys. Um, well, now they talk about guys who, you know, are, are sort of medium hitters hitting it. Th- they all hit it 300. You know, Corey Pavin was a very, very short hitter on the PGA Tour, averaging, I think it was like 245, 250. But that was a time when the average player on the tour was hitting it, you know, 272, 275. You know, there are no, when they talk about short hitters now, guys like Ches Reeve and things like that, they're not short. They're just, they're not short to us, but they're, you know, 285, 290. Mike Weir would have been sort of a career 275 hitter. Now, you know, like all of these guys are, when they want, they seem to fly it in the air 300 yards. Well, well Brian Harmon, who, yes. 
who who looks on TV like he's five five. Yeah. I don't know how tall he actually is. He hits the three hundred. Oh yeah. I mean, the the technology and the and the athleticism they they just they've taken all of that and they and they all go after. I was watching this. Um, Jason Day video about his process. He has a very, you know, he's very methodical, has his process. And I love he went all through this stuff and why he closes his eyes, visualization, all this stuff. And I get over the ball and then I hit it as hard as I can. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I love that. What's the key? I hit it as hard as I can. um, Fred of the Humble and Fred show, just his grandson, Johnny, started playing golf recently. And uh, I gave him some, I have these like uh, indoor golf balls, you know, and they have, they have, they're, they're, they're rubber, but they've got enough plat, they've got enough heft to them that you can sort of feel like you're hitting a ball. And Johnny's out there hitting golf balls. And that's all I said to Fred. I said, don't tell him anything except go ahead and swing as hard as you can for his life. I said, worry about grip and all that. And sure enough, because this kid's father, uh, Fred's son-in-law, he's got a, his, he's got a nice golf swing. So Johnny is imitating his dad, but I've watched Fred sent me some videos and this kid is just wailing on it, which is, which is great. You know, teach him the grip later. Worry about stance later. Just let him whack away. Yeah, exactly. Hey, golf parents out there, don't infect your kids with the technical stuff. Yeah. Let them hit it as hard as they can. They'll go find it later, and they will. You know, it's funny. I uh, A couple years ago, I, I have those swing speed trainers, you know. Swing sticks? Yes, I have those. And uh, I used them for a summer. I thought you were having a stroke. Just no, like. no. I just, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I got so much junk. <laughs> anyway, um, but one thing about the and I gave actually I lent them to my buddy Al. He gave them back to me. I, I use them sometimes warming up just because there's a weighted one. But one of the things that in the swing stick you know world that I do agree with is not that I don't agree with them. By the way, I think they're great. But if you're a guy our age and you think you're going to get ten miles an hour of club head speed, you're not. You're just not. Maybe a couple of miles an hour, but as I said to my buddy who I lent them to, is all this work for two miles an hour of club head speed really going to lower your handicap? Because it ain't. You know, four more yards of, of hit ain't going to make a difference if you were a better putter, chipper, etc. Anyway, uh, one of the things they say, though, is you need to get used to swinging it faster. And... Uh, I mean, you know, we all could swing it a little faster than our normal rhythm. But again, to what end? You know, if you can't, if you're not going to get, you know, five miles an hour or six miles an hour faster. I don't know what the, to me anyway, it doesn't seem like it's a. But I love the idea of swinging it faster. The confusing part for a lot of amateur golfers is that they're going to they're going to use their big muscles and they're going to just try and like swing as hard as they can and grunt it out there. That's not swinging faster. That in fact, you'll swing slower doing yes. that. And it, more of it's relying on your small muscles and you know, we could get a tech. Well, the word you here. used a while ago, I love that word abandon swinging with abandon is swinging well, we faster. Ta- you know, it's interesting. We co- we've come back to this a few times. Have we? <laughs> and I think we need to get Ryan Robillard on this, on our, on this esteemed podcast. I think he's like the key guy in terms of distributing those sticks in Canada. Yeah, let's get him uh, on. He, yeah, he's a, he's assistant coach of the university of Windsor golf team. 
And uh, I know Ryan. I'll, I'll reach out. we got to get him on because I like that idea of swinging with uh, more freedom. Yeah. And I think I think that a lot of people are prone to trying they try to swing carefully or I have to swing in rhythm and and in fact I think you're just getting in your own way I think when you swing with more speed and abandon yeah then you can really hit some good well, that's what shots. you said about Jason Day it's like okay I'm, I'm over the ball now and, and, and again back to decade you know one of the things that he recommends and I'm going to do it as soon as we can get back outside because I did it when we took the seminar a couple years ago but I haven't done it since which is go to your range you know hopefully on a day it's not so busy and take 20 drivers and and see what your dispersion is and and most of us like even tour players their dispersion is immense but let's just say guys like us or handicapped players like my dispersion let's say it's 60 yards my good one is you know so you're somewhere over here on the left somewhere over there on the right so knowing that it could go and you don't know which one's going to come you might as well just rip at it because as you say, being careful and, and trying to swing harder actually slows your, cell, slows your muscles down. But knowing exactly. that in, within us on a tee box, there's the one down the middle, there's the hot pull left, there's the block right. It could be any one of those. So your, your best chance of club head control, not to get too technical, is to swing with abandon versus being careful. Yeah, absolutely. But that's obviously, it's more instinctual. You think about, you know, think back to baseball. You got one that's over the, over the middle of the plate, you're ripping at it. Mm-hmm. And, but you're not, you're not thinking, oh, I, I need to keep my head back. <laughs> no, you're, you're, <laughs> you're going at, at So, you know, really, you know, it's like our friend Todd Graves has said, you know, golf really, is it any more complicated than hitting a a, a stick hitting a rock on the yeah. ground? No, I know. Really, you know, and that comes back to full circle to to um, what we're talking about with Carl. It's just this this uh, fixation on how to do it right, and oh, oh, this guy is saying this on YouTube, but I need to do that. Uh, why don't you just do your swing? Yeah. Well, that guy that we, we I was talking about, the guy that writes the practical golf column, he's a kid out of New York. I did a little research this week. And oh, cool. uh, what's his name? I, I don't have it in front of me. I don't. OK, sorry to put you on. That's OK. I don't care. Josh. <laughs> oh, I think it is Josh. Is it? Yeah, maybe Josh. Um, no. But one of the things he talked about, and he's a plus zero point four. So he's just past scratch. And he says, he said, you know, my golf swing is my own. It's not, you know, maybe what everyone would teach. He said, but I have spent most of my time learning my own golf swing. So he, and then made it, he made an interesting point. If you're comfortable with how you swing a golf club, that's more important than if you're doing it technically perfect, because when pressure happens, you're always going to default to sort of how you normally swing it. And he said, I've learned to get around the golf course with my swing. And I thought that's a really interesting thing that if you're a 12 handicap, you don't need to swing it like you think a scratch does. You just need to be good at swinging it like you swing it. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I remember uh, uh, playing with with a guy who hit a fade. And he said to me, he said to me, damn, I don't I can't hit a draw. I said, why would you want <laughs> why to? Why are you trying to? 
you like you could play a fade all day and find the fairway. And even if you have a bit of a slice, allow for the slice. You know it, it's going to go. And and that's about again, it's about hitting shots and things as opposed to trying to do this thing right. Ugh. Yeah, you know, Carl has this thing, and I don't. We didn't really get into it at the end but you know asking good questions you know what's you know so not not only is it in the lost art of putting but in another one of his books he talks about what is what's the good shot here or what is the what's a good shot look like here yeah and and i was going to say you know two of the best players i played with at the national between them have won 15 club championships and one of them bill hutchison and and Dan Partland, both highly ranked amateur players, both hit what I would think. I used to think of as just this dinky, you know, cut, just a little. And and Bill Hutchison never missed fairways. He just hit a dinky cut, you know, didn't hit it as far as some of his peers. Just a two sixty five, two seventy yard, left to right shot all the time. And it isn't. It wasn't until the decade seminar that I realized he was doing it right. He just knew because and he didn't have the best golf swing, great, a very good swing, but not like, you know, some of his peer group. But he just was able to find it. He knew how he swung. And as I've gotten older, I, I think that's pretty important to know that. Can you stand up on a hole and have a faint, a fairly good, not a faint, a fairly good idea that it's going to do this most of the time, you know? Oh, I mean, a quick story, guys. I actually have to go fairly quickly. Yeah, me too. I got uh, lots of important I playing things with to Bruce do. Simmons. I'm very, very I started, busy. <laughs> I, I, I started working with Clublink in uh, in '98, doing their communications, and I finally got a game with Bruce Simmons, uh, the president of Clublink, and he had this what we charitably call a fire and fallback swing. Yeah, you know those guys you see at the at the driving range and stuff. Well. He was one of those guys that Carl would say has an untrained swing, but a trained mind. Because Bruce just played this fade all day and shot a, a sweet 79. And I, I think I kind of, you know, creaked in with a 83 with me with, you know, back in the day trying to make this perfect golf swing. Yeah, man. Well, uh, I don't know. I thought we would be golfing by uh, tomorrow. I had May 1st in my uh, golf returns pool, and I don't think that's happening. Hopefully, uh, it's back before you and I are. Thank you so much to Carl Morris. Go just Google him. There's just so so much great Carl content. His podcast is called uh, The Brain Booster. You got it. Uh, of course, thank you to TaylorMade Golf, TaylorMadeGolf.ca, and JWApparelInc.com, O'ConnorGolf.ca, HumbleAndFredRadio.com, and uh, we will see you uh, in seven days. Well, now you step inside, but you don't see too many faces.